is only one queen. Long live Queen Elizabeth. God save the queen. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. The Crowncast. A new watch-along podcast series from News Talk. The Crown. The Crown. The Crown must win. Kira Kelly, you're very welcome to episode six of the Crowncast, the podcast series where we look at all things to do with the Crown series four. And today we are looking in depth at Terra Nullius, which is episode six of series four of the Crown. And I am joined today to dissect it and pull apart finally by somebody who knows something about all of this. I am joined <laughs> now by Sinead Ryan, who, of course, is the presenter of the home show on News Talks on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. But not only that, an avowed royalist and indeed royal correspondent for many of our newspapers. Sinead, you're very welcome. Hello, Kira. How are you? It's lovely to be here and uh, not quite a royalist, but um, certainly <laughs> interested in the royals. Well, you know more than the likes of me or, or many other people I've had had in the chair. How are you enjoying it? Obviously, you've watched all of The Crown 1 to 3 as well as Series 4, but how are you enjoying this series in particular? Well, I'm in the kind of... Um, position which is a little bit strange and somewhat dubious of actually remembering these events in real life uh, so it's finally caught up with my lifetime and I remember the original of this tour in that. Australia so uh, I look as drama as a bit of crack as an ongoing soap opera um, I think it's fun beautifully photographed fabulously acted but you know, you wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to be taking it as a historical lesson, uh, you know, for the most part. But it's great fun. And a lot of conversations have been had around all of that, actually, about the fact versus fiction element to it. And indeed, some people don't like the fact that we are dramatising quite recent history, which yeah, personally, I, 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 I actually really like that we're dramatising quite recent in history because it gives us a bit of spin on things. But let, let's look at, at this episode in particular. We're now in, in episode six. We're more than halfway through the 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 10-part season four series of it. Uh, and this one is called Terra Nullius because the backdrop to all of this is Charles and Diana head off to Australia on a grand tour. And like in the other episodes of The Crown, they use sort of the, the, the political backdrop and the social backdrop. So Australia is a kind of a different country to the UK. There is a, an emerging anti-royalist sentiment and a republican sentiment. And there's a lot of talk about whether or not that they need a monarch or not. So there's a bit of importance around this trip that Prince Philip says to the Queen why are we sending the B team and Charles thinks it may be his big debut tell us a little bit about how it pans out yes it, it is very interesting and that's what I'm loving about the crown about this series because Pete Morgan has used the backdrop of real events and political movements and of course the royals are traditionally above politics aside from politics they have nothing to do with them really but in fact are themselves a terribly political organisation as we're finding out uh, the backdrop to this of course Bob Hall leader of the Labour Party, a staunch Republican, is swept to victory and really had probably the highest rating of any Prime Minister before or after him. So he he has just become uh, Prime Minister and he really, really does not want the royal visit at all. In fact, uh, he tries on several occasions uh, in, you know, in real life to hold a referendum against it. Eventually, one wasn't held until 1999 and it was firmly rejected by the people of Australia to remove the Queen as head of state. And there she remains to this day. So it's with that backdrop, they're going over to a somewhat hostile Prime Minister, but actually an adoring public. And there was uh, quite a lot of conversation around the time of this visit of Charles and Diana that, in fact, maybe they saved 
um, the monarchy over there. And, and there's a, there was a very real sense of it afterwards. And and there that is reflected within the piece because it starts off you, you can see that he's he's gruff and and he's not really particularly enamoured of them coming or oh you know Charles is an all right bloke he, he he's not at all deferential to him the way most people speak about the royal family and Charles and Diana arrive and and initially you know no one's laughing at Charles's jokes uh, Diana is slightly gauche slightly uh, unknowledgeable doesn't really know you know according to this series doesn't really know where she's headed off to on the tour and all of that and people aren't particularly bothered but over the period of time that they're there the sort of the fairy tale magic of 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 Princess Diana largely and of their wedding and of their marriage and all that seems to sweep the country along. Is that kind of a reflection of what happened? It really is because whatever about going to Australia this was Charles and Diana's first tour anywhere really. They had been to Wales but, but which is their you know their, their duchy but actually this was their first proper foreign tour and it lasted six weeks. It was an enormous undertaking because the Queen had been there as is referenced in this episode in 1954 mm. to massive claim now 1954 post-world post-war Australia was just on a high and to have their head of state uh, visit was an enormous kind of treat for them and and all of that so this time round uh, the whole circumstances had changed and there was a very big concern in uh, Buckingham Palace whether you know this would work out um, and they were sent over to do a job which is to shore up the monarchy uh, on behalf of uh, the United Kingdom and that's what they intended to do so um, in this sense Charles seems to have been very well briefed he had documents he had stewards with him uh, everything was decided as these things are down to every minute for every day being accounted Diana was the tag along and I think it was expected that she would just rock up smile cut a ribbon look pretty look yeah. pretty wear a nice frock and get back in the car uh, and it really seems to have been an afterthought that maybe they should consider her on this tour uh, and of course she had broken protocol already by bringing the baby uh, William uh, because that had never been done on, on tours and actually in this episode there's an interesting dynamic um, they, they use a the females quite a lot in this to kind of they drive do. the narrative and drive the conversation and there's a great scene where you have the Queen Mother Princess Margaret uh, Queen Elizabeth and Princess Anne for some reason who seems to be living in Buckingham Palace in this series even though she lived in Gatcombe Hall which is a long way away um, all sitting around the dinner table discussing this um, process of it or, you know, maybe maybe she wanted to bring the baby because there was, you know, adverse effects of you being away for five months. Oh, I don't know what you mean. It was a triumph. Um, <laughs> exactly. They, they, they are very keen to highlight the difference in parenting that uh, has happened in, in the, the, the Wales's family life between Diana and her two boys and how the Queen raised her own children. And, and, and Diana looks, I mean, I mean the, the Crown is largely sympathetic to the Queen, I think, but Diana certainly looks like a more normal parent as we would know parenting now. Yeah, and of course, it's not entirely fair to do that. I mean, the Queen grew up in a world where, where aristocratic children, and particularly girls, they weren't schooled, for instance. They didn't go to school. They had a series of private governesses to teach them how to cope in life with being a, a, a wife. And, you know, the Queen herself never went to school. And it was unthinkable of her to be a down on the floor, hugging your kids, rolling around kind of a mom. That was never her experience. She hadn't been brought up like that and she didn't bring her up her own kids like that. They were brought up by a series of nannies and boarding school and all that kind of thing. Now, Diana, on the other hand, um, who was still remember at the time of this episode, 22, a new mum, 
suffering from bulimia, clear mental health issues and absolutely exhausted from jet lag. I mean, how the girl got up in the morning and put on a dress and performed at all, I think, is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, And there is that sense that, you know, she had to be the perfect everything. And she had to be the epitome of a perfect mum. No, as it turned out, she was a fantastic mum and it showed and she was a very natural mother. Uh, so she didn't see herself as giving birth to the heir of the throne. She saw herself as just wanting a baby to love. Uh, and that comes across in the episode. There's a, another clip that we might might take here in just a moment where she does stand up to the, the I don't know if they're called courtiers or whatever they are, but but Charles's personal assistant or personal secretary who comes across to her, I say it as quite an odious little man who who is very nasty and snippy towards Diana and actually quite rude, as you would imagine, towards the future King of England, Queen of England, rather. Um, but she does. Let, let's have a listen to this. What do you see? His Royal Highness Prince William. That's a title. You can't see a title. Very well. I see a baby boy. Asleep or awake? Awake. Loud or quiet? Quiet. Angry or calm? Calm. Ugly or beautiful? It's just a question, Mr. Adee, nothing to be frightened of. Is the child ugly? No. Then can we agree that this child is the opposite of ugly? Can we say he's a beautiful child? I'm busy, ma'am. What is your point? My point? is that this child is not just beautiful, this child is perfect in every single way. So why should you expect me, as his mother, to be without him for one second, let alone two weeks? Because you married the Prince of Wales, ma'am. And that is an act of service to the Crown and to the country, which you signed up to willingly and with open eyes. And you are the Princess of Wales. And the greatest act of service that I can give to the Crown as Princess is not to be some meek little wife following the great prince around like some smiling doll, but to be a living, breathing, present mother, bringing up this child in the hopes that the boy that will one day become king still has a vestige of humanity in him. Because God knows he's not going to be getting it from any of his courtiers. But she does face him down, Sinead. She does go, no, I'm going to show you this child. And I'm a mum and this is a baby and, I, and I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm not doing what went before. I don't care what you think. I mean, that's quite interesting for a 22-year-old girl. Without the support of her husband, it must be said, in, in the series, at least. It is. And, and I don't know. I think there's probably a fine line between facing him down and having a bit of a tantrum. And, you know, she came across as, as really kind of throwing all the toys out of the pram. Just being, I, I think it was just an utter plea for help. Please help me. I've no idea what I'm doing here um, this is really hard for me nobody's listening to me um, and, and she was really suffering and all she was hearing in return was the equivalent of pull yourself together uh, yeah. you know you have a duty get out there do your job now in a in a woman maybe 10 or 15 years older as we have recently seen with, with Meghan Markle the Duchess of Sussex in South Africa much more worldly wise competent capable woman she still struggled on a world on a, on a royal tour and and kind of broke down over it. So uh, you can't blame Diana back in this time for really just not having a clue how to cope. She was a kid and a naive one at that. Yeah, there's an argument that it was even harder for Meghan to some extent because she had had a normal life relatively speaking here to four and suddenly being thrust into this madness would be very jarring whereas Diana knew no no different or no better to some extent. Um do you know what struck me from all of this, from, from the machinations around the tour and how Diana was treated, particularly initially, and we'll get into how that tour developed in just a sec. They really did see her as kind of a brood mare. She was supposed to turn up, smile, as you say, put on a frock and look pretty, produce kids, 
and, and cause no trouble, just slot in what was ever necessary. The fact that she pushed back at all, both through her, you can call them tantrums or her, her mental health issues or, or all the different sort of ways that, 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 that this emerged and, and came out for Diana. They, they never expected that she was going to be any kind of a problem, I don't think. Absolutely not. They wanted and expected and anticipated a fully compliant young girl that they could mould in whatever way they wanted. And, and remember, the reason that Charles and Diana got together, it wasn't quite how the Crown depicted it. Her mother, her grandmother, Lady Formoy, was a lady-in-waiting to the then Queen Mother and they were terribly good friends. And they came up with a list of suitable brides for Charles when he had, was approaching 30 and hadn't yet found somebody to marry and to carry on the um, the royal family. So they came up with a list, by all accounts, and, uh, and Diana was right there on it. Now she was at the younger end of it because, remember, at the time, back in the nineteen early, the early nineteen eighties, unbelievably, Kira, it was there was a dual requirement of any future queen, and that was first of all uh, that she was uh, aristocratic, at least royal, preferably, but aristocratic. I'm terrified of what you're going to and, say as a second. And secondly, that she had, uh, as the Victorians used to say, say kept herself tidy. Is that virginity you're talking? That is virginity because they didn't want a girl and this was the reason Charles couldn't marry the love of his life, Camilla, uh, at the time because she had what they called a past. And a past meant that some old boyfriend could pop up out of the woodwork and tell the world what you know, that he had slept with the future queen. And this is precisely why Diana was picked. The 12-year age gap, dismissed. The fact that they were incompatible, doesn't matter. The fact that she, like, really, for a 30-year-old man to be courting a 19-year-old girl, like, nobody batted an eyelid at the time. It seems extraordinary now. I asked Kieran Cuddy when I I did a podcast with him on this. um, I said, what do you think about the misogyny? And he said, what misogyny? I'll ask you the same question. (laughs) What do you think about the misogyny, Sinead? Uh, in spades is is what I think about it, Kira. No, it was ever thus, and uh, you know you have to remember that two of the best monarchs that Britain has ever had, three of the best monarchs actually in history, were all women: Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth II, and Queen Victoria. And without a doubt, I think they probably brought brought in more reformation into Britain than any of the males that had attended to to that before and since. Uh, And as a result, it seems extraordinary that um, this underlying uh, dismissal of women or or this notion that they are only there to perform one function seems extraordinary, but yet it persisted. Fabulous scenes in previous episodes between Margaret Thatcher, who was obviously the Prime Minister, and Queen, who was the head of state, both kind of dismissing women at the same time in in these in these intimate weekly meetings that they had, uh, without a shred of self awareness that they were running the country between them, sort of thing. And and it, it wasn't um, reflected in the it, it didn't seem to impact on their views. But that's the way. Uh, just with regard to the Queen, you mentioned the Queen in 1954. She had gone on tour with Philip, and it had been fabulous. And and they kind of looked fondly, and and there's some nice scenes always. I think in, in the episodes in series four between Philip and uh, and Queen Elizabeth in that they do seem to have a genuine affection or love or whatever it is for each other but they're talking about that tour and how it kind of brought them together we saw that mirrored really over the course of the tour in this episode between Charles and Diana they had, they had a big bust up at the beginning she was all upset the baby I wanted to see the baby and they go off to this sheep shearing station or sheep farm or whatever it is to see William on the tour and it kind of for the purposes of dramatic uh, um, uh, television, it seems to reignite something between them. I think 
really what it did was it brought to a head Dana's frustrations. I mean, she was coming home from each engagement in tears, you know, very, very hot, very tired, jet lagged, upset, her baby been taken away from her and all that. And I think there was probably a moment and, and I... We obviously don't know what went on privately in the dialogue. Peter Morgan has, has interpreted that as a kind of this big row that they had back in the sheep station. I think it's probably entirely possible that that happened at least once. Um, but uh, it did and it brought them together. But it also did something else with this series because it seems to be given the impression that the pair were completely dismal and uncommunicative since the day they met. Now, in reality, of course, that just wasn't the case. They had moments of joy. I mean, Harry was born the following year after they got back from Australia. So, I mean, they had got it together at some point and they had great moments of joy, which both Diana and Charles acknowledged in in interviews they did. So I was pleased to see in this episode that there was even a glimpse of that happiness that they did share for at least a short while in terms of resolving an argument argument, Diana's needs being met. I, I just want somebody to love me. And in fact, Charles admitting to the same thing. Well, I want, I'm I'm needy too. And of course, I think they were two sides of the same coin. They are two incredibly needy people. Uh, and, they, and they just couldn't give that to each other. It was like being married to yourself. It really, really difficult for them. But that scene where they danced, that was a moment of pure joy and I'm glad it was left in like that because that's what it was like. They're both wonderful dancers, of course. Diana trained as a classical ballerina. Uh, Charles w- would have been taught to dance as part of his of his uh, education and and they were tall and elegant and beautiful and healthy and it was just a lovely, lovely scene. And, and more that, of that, that actually happened. That happened, didn't it? That, it that did. Actually, that- it did, and and it was almost exactly like that. In fact, in real life, it was even more fun because the band uh, picked up the music and and increased the tempo, and Charles suddenly swung her round the round the room at a ferocious pace, and uh, she burst out laughing, and everybody had a wonderful time. You don't contrive that, you know. It did actually happen. Yeah. So so over the course of that trip, they became closer. You could see that there was a little frism between them. They, he hopped into her room one of the nights and, you know, you know all those kinds of ideas. It also showed that he was he stopped. And obviously, we're just going to go what the Crown says. We have no idea what actually happened. That he stopped taking calls from, from the now Duchess of Cornwall, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, as was then. All of that. All of that happened. And so there was a kind of a re-igniting of something between them. However... As her popularity appeared to grow over the course of the tour and everyone was clamouring for Lady Di, Princess Diana, we love you, we love you. Sour grapes, Charles appears to have become quite jealous and we and we hear Anne pointing out to the Queen, this is never going to go well. Let's just take a listen to that. There's a problem no one foresaw. Huge crowds wherever they go. Some even bigger, I'm told, than those you got back in the 18th century or whenever you went. 1954. And I very much doubt it along with raves in all the newspapers for Diana's beauty and charm and most of all, her motherhood. I heard she'd been hysterical, clinging to the poor baby like a life raft. Evidently, that clinging is what the Australians have responded to. What a natural mother she is. How physical and caring. Anyway, why is all this a problem? You and I both know how much Charles craves reassurance and attention and praise. This tour of Australia and New Zealand was supposed to be his grand debut, his moment in the sun, his future king. Just saying. Yeah. 
And the pointing out is never going to go well. Charles doesn't like other people being the centre of attention. He begrudges it. And yet here we have the situation at hand that Diana was becoming the star. Yes, and, and that's what I that's what I meant earlier because Charles had been had been sent over there to do one job, which is make sure there's not a, rep- a referendum chucking us out of here at, at any time in the near future. He had grown up being pandered to completely. An incredibly needy person uh, who everybody bowed and scraped to, put first, you know, he was in charge of most situations, whatever he said got done and suddenly he's out here with this adoring crowd uh, and they don't want to see him. And there was real reports and you can hear, you can see them in the actual footage um, whereby he, he would walk down the street and Diana would take one side, he'd take the other and a big groan would go up from the cl- crowd on his side. Oh God. Because they'd all want Diana and he famously gave a speech where he more, he more or less said, listen, I, I wish I'd brought two wives. I could have walked down the middle directing the operation and he owned was half joking uh, so he must oh, have felt and he does lift. he does that doesn't he do you know when, 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 when are you, you're, you're getting married you're in love oh whatever that means like he does <laughs> put out little asides that are quite revealing he can't really help himself he did and you saw in the episode uh, in episode 6 there where he's giving this very very important speech and actually it was quite an important kind of Guildhall uh, political speech and Diana's behind him he's talking about her he's been very complimentary it's wonderful and I know you've all been looking forward to seeing her my beautiful wife and she makes a face behind his back. Now, in reality, the face is, as you saw it in the episode, she just kind of throws her eyes to heaven and has a little smirk. It's in no way detracting from what he's saying. And he throws an absolute wobbler because he thinks she's inserted herself in the middle of this vastly important speech, which isn't actually terribly important at all. Uh, And that just serves to him as her stealing the limelight. She said in an interview afterwards, I was just there. I didn't know any of this was going to happen. I didn't expect it. And I think that was reflected in this episode. She really, she was blindsided by the attention. Yeah. And what we see then, the it, it all works out famously from the Royals point of view and from the Republican point of view in that the Australians now have re-embraced the monarchy and yay, and that it's a success from all that point of view. But what we also see is by the time they're coming home again, that things are miserable once more. In fact, when they get back on uh, to off terra nullius to terra firma in, in the UK, they kind of go their separate ways. But what we do see is that trajectory, that the more the ascendancy of Diana emerges, the more the decline of her marriage Seem, they seem to be on opposite trajectories, don't they? Yes, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the increasing confidence that Diana found over the years. Uh, I mean, she married when she was really just barely out of her teens. She didn't even know herself at that stage, never mind how to please this very difficult, uh, challenging man that she was married to. And over the years, especially with motherhood, once she'd completed her duty, which was to give birth to her heir and a spare, um, she 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 was really much done with what was expected of her and there was a little bit more freedom freedom given to her. She was allowed to pick and choose her own charities, decide on this engagement over that engagement. She had her own personal staff and you can begin to see that not quite emerging in this episode but certainly as we go on and, uh, and, and fair play to her and that allowed her, I suppose, begin to direct operations rather than just be passive to them. I suppose try as they would, they couldn't ignore her popularity. I mean, she she any event was was an out and out success if she was at it. Any any sort of media coverage if she if she was there became much more positive about the royals. 
she had a power that they they didn't particularly want to give her, but she had one anyway because it was, I suppose, given to her by the people, the people's princess, Sinead. She she had what would ultimately nowadays be called a soft power. So all she had to do was rock up somewhere and she would make the front pages. Uh, Famously, newspaper editors said over the years that they could guarantee their circulation if they had Diana on the front page, as as of course could most of the women's magazines around that time. Uh, So the royals, and you see that in this episode, the courtiers are between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I mean, popularity for the monarchy, they, they really need it because they've been through the dismal 70s recession. There was a, there was a possibility of, of a Republican movement really gathering steam in Britain at that stage, especially with successive Labour prime ministers. And now suddenly, you know, you have this huge popularity of, of the monarchy. But the price they have to pay for that is Diana. And, and is living with her and her challenges and her needs. On that tour, uh, it's said that she shook 2,000 hands per day. She would come back to their hotel room or their house they were staying in and literally stand her hands in ice for ages wow. and ages just to undo the bruising and and the squeezing that had been going on of, of her hands. I mean, this is, this is a, a kid who should have been yeah. on her gap year, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and and it's funny when you think of her at that age. Like my eldest is twenty, only two years younger. It's a, it's a, it's a mad level of responsibility. But she does come back, and in in this this episode, she goes to the Queen after. Says, says I'm very unhappy. I just want to be accepted. I want to be loved. You are the one who who decides what all the family think about everything. You know, can you do that for me? Can you can you you know embrace me into the bosom of this family properly? And the Queen doesn't react very well. She doesn't react at all because she doesn't understand that. To the Queen, duty comes before everything. It came before her own children. So she cannot understand Diana not getting this. Or Char- She was deeply frustrated with Charles as well, by the way, not instructing his wife that this is how things are done and how could she possibly not have known that. I mean, the very reason they picked an aristocratic gal who grew up you know, behind their yeah. estate is because this is what you expect. You should know this stuff. Uh, and Diana didn't. And suddenly she had needs and wants of her own. Uh, she had mental health challenges. She had physical challenges. And they just didn't get it. And by the time they did, of course, it was far too late. And that scene that we, we played a clip of earlier, but we also refer to where the, uh, the Queen Mother is sitting at that table with, with, with Margaret and and the Queen herself and Anne and she said look like all of them like Philip himself she will over time bend and she she will you know get used to us and she will adapt and she will bend and someone says what happens if she doesn't bend and and Margaret says she will break that was quite prophetic wasn't it well of course and of all people to say it Margaret who did herself break and um Margaret, who had to give up her love of her life, the group captain, Peter Townsend, who she should have married uh, and would have in other circumstances and had to give up all of that uh, to marry somebody uh, really with whom she had a terrible time and and was deeply, deeply unhappy, at least as unhappy as Diana. So I think it was prophetic coming from Margaret of all people, but even she did her duty and got on with it. And so she was a little bit, um, I would imagine, intemperate with Diana, not being able to do the same. After all, she had had her life ruined and had still got on with it. 
Yeah, interesting that she didn't maybe have more sympathy having gone through the same thing herself, but that's not always how it works out. Look, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Uh, that is Sinead. And Sinead, I know on, on the Home Show podcast, you actually had one of the set designers. Tell us about that. Yes, very, very exciting. Last week, uh, anybody can listen back to it on the podcast, 21st of November, we had Alison Harvey, who was the set decorator for um, The Crown, this series and indeed all of the series. And uh, it was fascinating. And we were talking to her specifically about episode six, the Royal Tour to Australia. Australia. And I have to disappoint everybody by telling her it was filmed in Spain. Uh, so all those outdoor scenes you have um, are indeed of Spain rather than Australia. And they had to do that. But she has a fabulous story to tell all about uh, how they design the sets and where they find all the props uh, and how they make it look authentic. And it's really, really well worth listening back to on the Home Show podcast. Good stuff. Listen, thank you so much. We'll be tuned to the Home Show this Saturday at nine as well. Thank you so much to Sinead Ryan for talking to me about episode six. <laughs> The Crown Cast. From News Talk. The Crown. The Crown. The Crown must win.